0: delight for me and my family to be here. My heart is very full. Um, We love you guys very much. I know some of you and the ones that I know I really like. (laughs) So that's good, right? I'm really excited for the chance to get to know some more of you. Um, My wife Hannah is in the back and I've got my kids with me. Uh, But again, it is a joy and a privilege to be here. So we're very thankful. Um, Today, I wanted to preach on a topic that I care about quite a lot, thought about a lot, meant a lot to me. That's a little dangerous for you because that'll tempt me to go longer than maybe I should. I'll I'll do my best not to. Uh, But I want to preach today from Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, before I read it, I want to give a little bit of introduction. It'll be Ephesians 3, verses 14-19. to What's the most common or or most known verse in the Bible? What would you say? John 3.16, right? It's like the thing that if you're going to know one verse in the Bible, that's going to be the verse. John 3.16. Well, if John 3.16 is a very simple, concise way to know how to become a Christian or what it means to become a Christian, then this passage, to my mind, has everything to do, it's a concise summary of what it means to live as a Christian. To walk as a Christian. So I think it's an incredible passage. I'm very eager to talk about it. The book of Ephesians has a basic structure to it like many of the other epistles. The Apostle Paul starts with doctrine. He starts with big picture ideas. And then he moves to practice, how to take those big picture ideas and, and use them in your day-to-day practical living. And this, it's the same thing in this book, in the book of Ephesians. And the chapter three, chapter 3 is kind of the pivot point. It's where he goes from big ideas and then in the beginning of chapter 4 he starts on into practical day-to-day living. Now, as I preach today, I want you to keep a question in your mind. I want to keep this question forefront in your mind, and it's this. Is God pleased with you? Or is He angry with you? Some of you here, I assume most of you are Christians, some of you may not, but whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist, a Christian or an atheist, everyone has to answer this basic question. Another way to come at the question is, are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God? I grew up for much of my childhood in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It was called Zaire at the time. It's in Central Africa. My parents are missionaries. I just was visiting with them this past weekend, and they're headed back to the Congo uh, in just a week, or actually this week. The Congo is a place that suffers from terrible spiritual oppression. If you've ever been to a museum, in this country, perhaps, and seen, you know, art from different parts of the world. If you ever see art from the Congo, a lot of, a lot of it might be masks, right? They have these amazing masks that are very uh, noticeable, and uh, they're used in their religious worship, and they're very often depictions of demons who the people there will alternately worship and appease. If you look at these masks, you'll notice that the demons are very, very angry. They're terrifying. As a child, I was terrified by them. From just looking at the masks, it seems as if these gods that they serve want to devour them. And my question to you, is that how you see God? Now on the other side of the world, here in the United States, uh, we think very differently. Right, uh, There was a preacher some years back, and the years keep going on and on, so quite some time ago now, who released a video titled The Gods Aren't Angry. The Gods Aren't Angry. Anyone recognize that title? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, it doesn't really matter. But the uh, point, you know, his aim, was at something called the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Okay? He wanted to try to refute it. And that sounds complicated. It's a fancy theological phrase, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. But it basically means this. It's that God is good and just and that He hates evil. And because He's just, He punishes evil. Right? We were born evil. We fill our lives with evil. And so we deserve to be punished. Jesus was not evil. He lived a perfectly sinless life and yet He was crucified on the cross, paid the penalty for my sins, and so in in exchange for Christ's perfection, uh, He's punished, and I get off scot-free. right? This is the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. It just simply means that Jesus was punished and took my place. And of course, this to me sounds like good news, right? This is good news for me. I deserve death, and yet... I got off free. But the preacher in this video didn't like the idea at all. He didn't like the idea of God being angry. And so he came up with another theory of what happened on the cross. He denied that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice taking the punishment in our place. And instead, Jesus' death on the cross was meant to simply reveal the ugliness and brutality of a system built on the need to appease God. Jesus' death was simply... Uh, something to mark the ultimate end of the system of sacrifices. And so he went on to say that God wasn't really angry. Nobody really needed to be punished in that way. Uh, but Jesus was simply modeling nonviolence in His death as in His life. And so in doing this, he gave Jesus gave the complete revelation of what God had actually always wanted. And so instead of being a sacrifice to take my place, Jesus was primarily the perfect example for us to follow. Now, of course, Jesus is an example for us to follow, but the the practical result of this kind of false teaching is that we are led to have no compunction of conscience. right? Despite our evil thoughts, despite our intentions and our actions, there's no need for us to feel remorse or sorrow or to, to, to think that God would ever be angry About our sin. You know, or even if he's slightly annoyed at it, uh, he's not bothered to demand punishment of any kind. The practical result of this teaching is that is a people with very high self esteem because they've learned, we've learned, that the worst sin is to ever feel guilty for anything that we've done and that God would ever be displeased with us. So, on the one hand, you have the Congolese on one side of the world. Taught to live in abject fear of the ones that, the God that they serve. And on the other hand, we have us here in America who are taught that the worst thing you could possibly do is ever feel guilty or to ever fear God. The Congolese know that they can basically never assume that the gods are pleased with them. And we as Americans must never even ask the question of whether God is pleased with us and what we do. Our passage today, it's a long introduction, I know, but our our passage today, I believe, helps us respond to both errors. It is possible, and it's commanded, in fact, for us to have a tender conscience toward our sin and yet to remain strong in the Lord and in faith. There is a proper place for guilt and remorse. And God has given us in His Word the proper way to address that guilt, so that we can know and walk in the peace of God. So let's, let's read God's Word now. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray real briefly. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we lift It up to You today. We pray that You would fill us with it and help us, strengthen us by it, Father. Feed us by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so the book of Ephesians is filled with amazing truths. Right? Chapter 1 talks about the grace of God that He lavished on us in Jesus Christ. It teaches us that God set His love on us before He even created the world. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father in Heaven. He's above all rule and authority and power and dominion. His name is above every name. Chapter 2 describes how our new life in Christ. It begins with the words, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And it describes us as children of wrath by nature. But it goes on to say that when we were dead in our sins, God, by His kind mercy, raised us up and made us alive together with Christ. God took a dead, rotting corpse and made a new man out of it. This is an amazing truth. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul goes on to explain how this God who has rescued us from our sin now has made us one family out of all those who believe in Him. Right, Both Jews and non-Jews. The dividing line between those two groups has been broken down, and we all come to God in one spirit. We're all family now. It's with these truths as the backdrop that Paul begins chapter 3 with the words, for this reason I. So, everything he's going to say next depends on those first two chapters. And like Paul typically does, he takes a a quick aside at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, for this reason, and then he goes on to something else. But then, in our passage today, he comes back. It's like he says, I'm coming again. And he begins again, for this reason, right? He, He says the same words, but he says, he, uh, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So, first thing to point out about our passage today is that it's a prayer. All the glorious truth that Paul had talked about l- leads him right to prayer. And this entire passage, today's entire passage, is a prayer to God. He's not yet gotten to the practical instructions. He's speaking directly to God on behalf of the Ephesians, and he's showing them how he is praying for them and how they should pray for themselves. So the first point is that he's instructing them that what comes next can never be conjured up by the will of man. The practical instructions in the following chapters can be mimicked. They can be faked. Right? Uh, things like don't steal or "work with your hands, be kind to one another." These are things that, to some one degree or, or another, you can kind of fake it till you make it, sort of thing. But the requests found in this prayer can never be counterfeited. When they're present, they exist in the inner man, as it says in verse 16, and they depend entirely upon God's power. Now, verse 15 in our passage teaches us about the federal headship of God the Father. We have now become, if you've, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been welcomed into the family of God and we take His name upon us. Right? This is why it's, it was assumed until recently uh, that when a couple got married and had children, all the children would take the Father's name. Our marriage custom comes from the truth of how we relate to God. He is our Father, and therefore we take His name. The actual request that Paul makes begins in verse 16. He prays prays that according to the riches of of His glory, He, speaking of God, may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now, I want to make an obvious point here that uh, you may not have thought of. You have an inner man. Now, you may know in, in theory or we may think this in theory that we have an inner man, but I think that many Christians today live as if it doesn't exist. Right? Our culture certainly denies that there's any spiritual inner man. Scripture speaks of it alternately as your soul or your heart. Uh, but the point here is that you have a soul and it needs to be strengthened. Some of you go to the gym, maybe some of you come to the Y here on uh, the regular uh, the the off days, uh, Monday through Friday, or Monday through Saturday, uh, and strengthen your body. Your inner man needs to be strengthened just like your body needs to be strengthened. In Matthew 13, Jesus condemns the hypocrisy of the Pharisees by proclaiming seven woes to them. A hypocrite is someone whose heart is shriveled and, and sick like dead men's bones. They put on a facade of health and vigor, but inside they're rotting. And as good Americans, we spend countless hours, piles of cash on our bodies, right? Some of us make a principle of, uh, of starving ourselves. Some of us make a principle of eating too much. Some of us are disciplined and beat our bodies into into regular shape. Others of us are undisciplined and we beat our bodies on occasion and feel guilty for not doing it the rest of the time, right? We pay very close attention to our bodies, but we pay very little attention to our souls. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It's your heart, even more than your body, that needs nourishing. And God has given us various ways to nourish our heart, right? The means of grace is the shorthand way of talking about it. And, and, and what are they? It's God's Word, prayer, uh, the sacraments, fellowship with other believers, sitting under, the, of the, under preaching. It's by these means that God answers Paul's prayer here in Ephesians to strengthen our inner man. But of course, you don't just need to put good food in, right? You've got to stop putting garbage in. You've got to stop putting garbage in. My appeal to you is don't put garbage into your soul. What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you stewing on constantly? Paul is very concerned about our inner man here. And we should be as well. Now, Paul has already written in chapter 2 about how we formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and how God has rescued us. By nature, we were born in evil and sin. And we were children of wrath. That is to say, we were target. We were the target of God's wrath. God was angry. He was angry with us but God through Christ has showered His love upon us and made us alive. But God's work in us doesn't stop after He makes us alive in Christ. Now this is what I want to get to today. This is the source of so much confusion in in the life of being a Christian. And I'd like to try to unpack it for us today. There are some who say that since God has rescued us, We shouldn't have to worry about our feelings of guilt and shame anymore. After all, we're Christians, right? We're Christians. We we know better. And we should be free from feelings of guilt and shame. Others think that God has done His part and now it's time for us to get to work, right? God did that. That's great. But now we have to get to it. And if that includes beating beating ourselves up, either physically or psychologically, then that's just part of it. We need to get to work. Brothers and sisters, there is work to be done. But we must not think like that. We cannot think that God has done His part and now it's just up to me. So how are we to live? It's right here in this passage. First of all, Paul prays for God to strengthen us because we so desperately need it. We desperately need it. Yes, absolutely, we needed it when we became a Christian, right? This is what it means to be born again. New life. There's something new. But we need it every day. We need it every day. We would be weak and helpless without God strengthening us with His power in our inner man. We don't strengthen ourselves. We need Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith every day. And it is not God's intention for His saints to be constantly tossed to and fro in our consciences like perhaps the Congolese, right? We are to be rooted and grounded in love. To be rooted and grounded calls up the image of a tree, right? I was just in Savannah this weekend. Have any of you guys been down to Savannah, Georgia? There are these amazing trees called live oaks. Have you ever seen a live oak before? They're just incredible. They're amazing. Some of them are just huge. But you've seen big trees before, right? Just the idea of a root going down deep, giving us nourishment, stability. This is the love of God for us. This is where our roots must go down deep. Psalm 1-3 tells us that the man who delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. To be grounded is to have a firm foundation like that of a well-built building. The storms may come and go, but we'll be firmly planted in the love of Christ. Are you planted firmly in the love of Christ? Jeremiah 2.13 teaches that Israel was guilty of two things. God's people were guilty for forsaking Him, the fountain of living waters, and two, for making for making for themselves broken wells that could hold no water. Now, brothers and sisters, we do the same thing today in churches all around the country, in our lives day to day. We forsake the Lord, and then we try to fill up from some other place some other cup. It's only when you realize that your cup is empty, first of all, that it can be filled. And it's only when we realize that we have something to repent of that Jesus becomes precious to us. The forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ is a well that we must drink from every day. Every single day. This is... The place that we as Christians, we don't just go there when we become a Christian. We go there every single day. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. How is your sin revealed to you? Is God reveal it to you? Just from the sky? Not usually, right? You might have the benefit of reading God's Word or praying in your room by yourself and it being uh, show, show up to you. But usually, actually, it's some person (laughs) that comes to you and says, either they might be in tears, crying because you've hurt them somehow. They might be angry at you. Is Is it easy to hear someone angry at you for something that you've done? No, it is very, very hard. It is extremely hard. And... How do we handle it when someone comes to us with our sin? Usually not very well. Usually not very well. Sometimes we just avoid it. We avoid the person. We avoid the issue. We run away. Sometimes we fight back. We, we say, you know, how dare this person. You know, what they've done is ten times worse than what I've done. We come up with all kinds of reasons. You know, I was tired that day. We justify ourselves in many ways and we punch back brothers and sisters this is not this is not <laughs> what we're to do this is not the christian life what does it take to hear someone else point out our sin it takes being rooted and grounded in love and so look at me with what comes next this is verses 18 and 19 are just what totally blew my socks off about this passage i remember i still remember distinctly sitting Uh, we were meeting not at the church building where we're at now. We were meeting at Grandview Elementary School across the road from the church. I I still vividly remember sitting on the curb. I don't know why. It was either before or after church. I was reading my Bible and I saw this passage and it just came over me like a flood. It's incredible. Particularly for those of you who, like me, are constantly thinking about our to-do lists, right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul does not pray that we will do anything in this passage. He simply prays that we would know the love of God. It's interesting because so Paul has been praying that you'd be strengthened, right? And you'd think that he'd be praying that you'd be strengthened to do something, to accomplish something. That you do good works or that you resist temptation or something. But he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he prays that you would be strengthened so that you will know the love of God. And what an amazing idea that you have to be strengthened to know the love of God. The the love of God is is something so challenging, so... uh, uh, Difficult, almost, to get our heads wrapped around that you have to actually be strengthened before you can get a hold of it. So let me read the passage again and pay close attention to the logic of the prayer. Okay, He's going, he, Paul is, The Apostle Paul is a very logical guy. Um, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, with all the fullness of God. He prays for God's power to strengthen us that we might along with all the saints know the love of God. It's amazing. It's an amazing prayer. You know, we think it's we think today that knowing things is easy, you know. I think I think it's because we we think like you know, you know how language determines the way you think a lot. And so we, we've now co-opted computer language to, to think about how we think. So we use words like process to, when, when we mean think. You know, a computer processes information. And when, and, you know, if somebody tells you something, often we say, we, he downloaded information. Well, downloads happen easily, right? A download just zip, zip, like you transfer files from one USB drive to a computer. It happens easily. But, I think our language has taken us astray here. And the Apostle Paul prays that we would be strengthened to know the love of God. To know it. I think that means something more deep, more profound than a simple zip drive transfer, file transfer on your computer. It's amazing. He says, um, Paul teaches us that it takes the very power of God to know the love of God. And then he goes on and says that by it, we can be filled up with all the fullness of God. <laughs> what does it even mean to be filled up with all the fullness of God? It's, it melts my brain. right? It's incredible. Amazing to even think about. <clears throat> so okay, I want to leave you today with two critical points. Okay, Two, two main things here. The key to being at the same time tender of conscience and strong in the Lord is right here in this passage. We have to be rooted and grounded in the love of God. What is going to make you able to hear about your own sin? I, you know, we just sang a song. Um, say whatever you want to say. Say what you want to say. Do you really want to? Do you really want God to say what He will say <laughs> to you? Really? You can barely handle it if your wife says something to you. <laughs> you really want God to say Well, yes, we do. By God's power, we want God to say whatever He will say to us. And this, brothers and sisters, takes strength. It takes being rooted and grounded in the love of God. And if, if, if you are rooted and grounded in God's love, then, yes you will not only be able to, you will welcome. Here's an idea. You will welcome other people. You will make it easy for other people to come to you and say whatever they need to say to you. Imagine that. right? Imagine that. That, that people would feel like they have an open door to come to you and say whatever they need to say to you. Whatever sin, whatever hurt you've committed, knowingly or unknowingly, that you would be so satisfied and rooted, not that you would blow them off or be un, you know, unapproachable, but that you would listen carefully and be able to hear it and say, yes, you're right, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Um, being tender of conscience is precisely what we need to be filled by Christ. If your conscience is heavy laden, <clears throat> that's a good thing. Because it's then that you can come to Jesus Christ. If you're self satisfied and proud, you will have no need for Jesus Christ. But if if you are able to hear uh, who you really are, to be to be if you are tender of conscience, and rooted and grounded, you will be able to receive god's love for you now this is again uh, the ability to to have a tender conscience to, to, be, to, to want to hear your sin pointed out to you um, does not mean that you will be cast to and fro you know by every uh, vicissitude of life, by every uh, difficulty in life, <clears throat> we can, at the same time, be willing to hear our sin and be at peace with God. Right? This is, this is what God offers to us in the gospel. Because it is, it is from God, from Christ, that we get filled up. It's from Him that we receive forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> Okay, so the first thing is the key to being uh, at the same time tender of conscience and strong in the Lord is to be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. second point I want you to leave with today, and and I started this sermon by saying that if John 3.16 explained in a simple way how we are to become Christians, then this prayer teaches us how to live as Christians. The point is that it takes the power of God to know the love of God and that knowing the love of God is the key to understanding and interpreting everything else in your life. How is it that the saints around the world today and in ages past can undergo the worst possible situations? Like, Have you ever read like Voice of the Martyrs kind of stuff? I mean, it's just amazing. How is it possible that Christians can go through that kind of difficulty and still uh, have the ability to talk about the love and mercy and peace of God. To still have the ability to forgive others for terrible sins. How is that possible? Though a Christian's dearest loved ones die, though they have their home and their money and their job taken away from them, though the earth itself gives way, yet they are able to know the love of God and to have peace with Him. All of these things explain the circumstances of one's life, but they do not determine how you respond to those circumstances. That is determined by your inner man. Right? And that is, again, what needs to be rooted and grounded in God's love. Romans 8 says something very similar. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, there are many competitors to this way of thinking in our world today. You know, someone may you, you might be listening to this and say, so what is the difference between what I'm telling you and the power of positive thinking, for instance? Um, or, you know, people think about what it, what it takes to be at peace. And so people uh, do yoga, for instance, or they, they go and sit in their room and do breathing exercises or something. And they, they say that they have peace through that. All of these other things are tricks, whether it's psychological or physical, to mimic what I'm talking about here. This peace, this rooting, this grounding has only ever been possible through Jesus Christ. Right? This is the way in actual fact where that we can be at peace with God is through the love of God through Jesus Christ. All of that other stuff is counterfeit. It can, give you a, it can give you a plausible surface kind of uh, uh, mimic uh, of what I'm talking about here, but the real thing, the real deal is in Jesus Christ. And so, what about you in your daily life? It's by knowing this truth this, and being rooted and grounded in Christ's love that you can respond in faith to children who are whiny and disobedient. It's how you can have peace when you lose your job or a loved one dies. It's by understanding this that you can have the love of God foremost in your mind on a day-to-day basis. At the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians, he goes on to say, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's starting to get into the practicality of things, right? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Is it easy to live together in the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? No, it is very difficult. It is very, very difficult. I don't know what your situations all are, But I know you have had conflict. Maybe you're in the middle of conflict now with a boss, a family member, somebody. It is very difficult. But it's possible to love in the midst of that by being rooted and grounded in Christ. So I asked the question at the beginning, is God pleased with you? and it's this question that must be answered before any of the practical commands of Ephesians can be obeyed the answer of course is that Christ is pleased or god is pleased with you in Christ Jesus we don't come to god with anything to offer to him god is pleased with us because of what jesus christ has done and it is our privilege as christians to go back to that well every day every day we are free to hear about our own sin because we have a well that will never run dry to feast on. God is pleased to give Himself to us and to allow us to feast on Him. So let's not forget to do that every day. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we do thank You for Your love. It is a well that does never run dry. And it is something that we evidence by the way that we live our lives that we do not understand well. And so, Father, I pray that You would please help each one of us to understand it better every day. That we would be humble when others hurt us. That we would love them. That we would be filled, rooted, and grounded in Your love.